podcast one production. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci from the Next Billion Seconds podcast, and together with banking futurist Andrew Davis, we're exploring the new world of neobanks. Now, that's a fancy word meaning new banks, and we're learning how we'll be saving, spending, and investing over the next billion seconds. Now, as we welcome back co-host Andrew Davis to the show, I'd like to note, since like the whole world, we're all working from home these days, I'm in my studio. Andrew is in his. Good day, Andrew. Good day, Mark. And it's great to be back, although we're not, of course, side by side, but that's the way things are right now. But in fact, before all this change, on the 4th of March, we had the opportunity to co-host a live event in Sydney, which was held at Stone and Chalk. Now, for those that don't know, Stone and Chalk is a not-for-profit organization, which first opened its doors in 2015 as the only dedicated fintech hub in Australia, and now operates across three locations of Sydney, Melbourne, and Adelaide, being home to around 850 residents representing a much broader spread of industries. And I'd like to thank the Stone and Chalk team for their support and enthusiasm in hosting our event. They did such a fantastic job. They really did. I mean, we came to them with a sort of basic idea of maybe doing a panel to be able to promote the launch of Betabank because it came out at the end of February. And it evolved into this wonderful idea where we got three of the guests that we'd already had on the series. So Dom Pym, Rob Bell, and Alex Twig. So respectively, the guests on episode two, episode four, and episode three. And then we also had a chance to get Simon Costello, who is at Stone and Shock. And Simon was on our short list of guests. And it seemed like it was a really good opportunity to talk to them about something that we hadn't covered explicitly in any of the previous episodes, which is what does it mean to found and to fund and to operate and to service one of these neobanks. That's, you know, we don't really start banks every day, do we? Definitely not in times prior to now, but our panel was actually testament to the rapidly evolving state of the financial services sector. Imagine being able to have a panel comprising a founder of each of Australia's big four banks. Wow, yeah. Even if we could go back in time to do that, because the initial businesses that today represent the big four were founded across different decades spanning a 95-year timeline, they never all lived and worked in the same period. So we need a TARDIS to do it, basically go and snatch them and bring them to stone and chalk and put them on a panel together. That's what we'd have to do. But, you know, so to the extent that the current market, we have a panel of founders all sitting in side by side, it's a very real measure of the pace of change now underway. And it was funny because... Every event that we go to now, someone says, have you heard about this new bank? Have you heard about that new bank? And it's amazing, this rate of change. So that where we had maybe four founders on a panel next year, we could easily have 40. All right. Without further ado, let's take you to the live panel. Now, I opened with the story of me on the day after Boxing Day, December the 27th, trying to buy a cup of coffee in my neighborhood in Sydney. Two days after Christmas, I was wandering around Chippendale looking for an open cafe because, as you know, Sydney, everything closes. And I find a local cafe that is open. I go up to the barista. Oh, my God, make me a soy flat white. He's like, here it is. I hand him a crisp new $50 banknote. He's like, sir, we cannot take your money. I'm like, what? He's like, no one else is paying with cash. I don't have enough money in the till to change that $50 bill. And this is the first time that actual 
banknote in my hand had been turned away at the till by an establishment that still took banknotes. And it told me that Australia had made this very interesting zero to one transition into digital payments. And that has had a side effect that none of us really thought about, which is that when you change the nature of money, you change every institution that is touched by money. And the first row of those institutions are the institutions that help us save and manage and invest our money. That is the banks. And so the fact that we are in this transition into digital payments and the fact that we now have this rise in neobanking and that they're happening at exactly the same moment is probably not a coincidence because what's happening now is we're changing the way we're thinking about money, we're working with money, we're dealing with money, and all of the institutions will now have this incredible opportunity to take advantage of that moment. And that's the opportunity for a new generation of bankers, the neobankers. And I want you to note very carefully the only two people on this panel who are in suits are the ones who are not neobankers. We are lucky to have four of these neobankers with us tonight. Three of them have already appeared on episodes of Betabank. That was the podcast that was inspired by what Andrew and I saw happening across Australia last year as all of these brand new banks, these neobanks, were getting started. So let me introduce our incredible panel. Dominic Pym, co-founder of Up Banking. Rob Bell. CEO of 86400, Simon Costello, CEO of Frankie Financial, and Alex Twig, co-founder of Judo Bank. There we are. Amazing. Now, we've got about a half an hour of questions that Alex and I have prepared. They're all designed around the framework of thinking about this because this is a startup hub and a startup fintech space. We're going to ask the questions that startup founders would be asking, and then we will be turning it over to you. You can ask any questions that you like. So first question from me to you, Rob, how do you start a bank? What is, I mean, what is that process there? What does it mean? And didn't you have to raise an extremely large amount of money to do this? Uh, it does take quite a bit of money to start a bank. And uh, I can't actually take credit for starting 86400. The, the initial work was done by our CIO, Brian Parker. So it was our technologist, our lead technologist, who actually did the original uh, business case and the original work. And, and what he was doing was looking at what was happening overseas and we looked at actually bringing a couple of different banking models to Australia because we saw nothing happening in Australia that was using the latest technology. But when we did our deep due diligence, we came to the conclusion that neither of these banks we looked at actually had the technology stack set up the way we would want to use it efficiently in Australia. It was always an afterthought. Um, so that's where the idea came from. We were very fortunate that we were funded 100% by Cuscal, which is a, a, a leading payments company in Australia. Um, it is basically the number one payments company outside of the big four banks. Um, so we had 100% funding from them on, on day one, which enabled us to entirely focus on building a bank. Um, we built our technology first. Uh, we actually had the bank operating 100%. And the last thing we did was got our license, um, which is why we were able to launch basically one day after getting our license. So we actually built a bank in practice. And then we had to convince the regulator that 
we'd built one in theory. And so what about Alex from a judo bank perspective? Probably out of the panel, judo's been in the market the longest and perhaps more fairly, we should call you a challenger bank. But do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how did judo bank come to market and that and the journey and the, and the demand on capital? Yeah, of course. Um, starting a bank basically involves a lot of beer and a lot of pizza. Um, <laughs> and a lot of crazy people. Um, but from a capital perspective, I mean, um, we went out and originally uh, we wanted to do this properly. So we didn't want to go out and, and start something small. We wanted to actually actually have set some really big goals for ourselves and go hard. And banking is a massively capital intensive business. Um, not just the amount of money you need to build the tech or build the uh, employ the people, but the amount of money that you need to lend on the balance sheet is enormous. Um, so we, you know, like everybody else in um, in fintech and startup land, thought, oh, twenty million dollars, that'll do. Um, <laughs> and uh, <coughs> we sort of took the kitty and we shaked it about a bit, and we sort of came up with a million. Um, and then we decided, oh bugger, that's not enough. And the capital raising process is probably the hardest part of the process for us. Um, actually building the bank, uh, creating the technology that sits underneath it, that's difficult. Um, but going through the process of raising enough money to launch a really substantial and, and sizable bank is very hard. Uh, we've currently raised somewhere in the region of $540 million. I, 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 let me just choke on that for a minute because I think probably Canva's last round was what, 300 million? And they're worth four or five billion dollars now, right? So you've had to raise more than the hottest startup in this country to basically get your bank up and going. And are you at the end of that ju raising journey now? No, we're right in the middle of another one. Uh, so we are about to, uh, we're in our round three, as we call it, uh, to raise another 400 million. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the effort involved in that is enormous. Um, you know, just uh, going around, I mean, uh, Joseph and David, uh, who basically ran most of the, the capital raising process, um, you know, we didn't see them for two years, pretty much. Um, you know, they were off around the world talking to VCs. You know, we, we basically got a phone call every now and again that says, Alex, need you in Hong Kong tomorrow, 2.30. Um, and that was pretty much it. And we jumped on planes, went and did demos and, and stuff, and, and away you went. But, um, you know, and like every other startup, we've been through our near-death experiences twice, <laughs> you know. Um, and it's, it's just a hard process. All right, now, Dom... You had a different path to market because Up has a different relationship because it's, and I mean, maybe explain this, the relationship between Bendigo and Adelaide Bank and Up and how that sort of brought you to market because it's another yeah. path, right? Yeah, sure. I was going to answer the first question that you asked as well, which was, um, I guess, almost how did you start it? Well, the motivation to start it. So I'll just start there and then I'll talk about how, how, how we did it. But the motivation for us was um, twofold. One was born out of frustration. So we've been working in, uh, in the banking space building technology. So I have a company called Ferocia and Ferocia built technology for Bendigo and Adelaide Bank for the largest credit union in Australia, under NDR, I can't say their name, but you know who they are, um, for one of the um, really successful mid-tier banks up here in Sydney, and then two of the major banks. Um, and, and we built technology in Asia, um, across 10 countries was the idea to build a digital bank, and then it was to build a digital bank here in Australia with one of the majors. We did that for four and a half years and never released any software to customers. 
So that was a complete waste of time, <laughs> but it was a good learning experience and that created the frustration. So that was the first seed. The second seed for us was helping people because we felt like there was a revolution happening around the world and in Australia, everybody was sort of stuck doing what we're doing and it was a little bit insular from the rest of the world. We have really great banks and really, you know, the weather the financial crisis and really great digital platforms here in Australia, internet banking, mobile banking, um, but something magical was happening overseas and so we wanted to help people. So helping people and being frustrated equals a bank, right? Um, now, how it's set up is that, and we're a little bit different than others, we got to market first in the sort of retail neobank space. And the, the way we're able to do that is that my company, Ferozia, partner with Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. So we built their mobile, tablet and internet banking systems for five years. And then we told them we had this crazy idea to build a bank. And to build a bank, you need $100 million to like open the door, you know, to get started at least. Another $100 million for, you know, lending or whatever. So we're like, we need at least $100 million. We need a core banking system and we need a banking licence. Um, and you couldn't get a banking licence in Australia at the time. Um, it could, or you could, but it was, you could get a traditional banking licence. We didn't have the restricted banking licence, the sort of easier on-ramp. And so we were telling this story to uh, Mike Hurst and Marnie Baker, who was the ex-MD and the current MD at Bendigo Bank. And they said, you know what? We have $100 million. We have a banking licence. We have a core banking system. We've been working together for five years. Maybe there's something we could do here. So we created UP, and UP is a collaboration between my company, Ferocia, and Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. And the easiest way to think about it, because it's complicated for the regulators and for all the legals and everything, but the easiest way to think about it is that we're a technology company, Bendigo's a bank, they provide the licensed financial product, and we do everything else. Yeah, but you just invented a new business model there. I just want to point that out, right? I mean, that's not something that you think of. It's like, oh yeah, there's this bank that partners with a technology company and bam, there's a new bank. Yeah, a lot of people um, uh, don't understand or are a little bit confused or anything. And there was nothing like it in Australia at the time when we did it. And we looked around the world and we found one company was kind of similar in the UK. But, but it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a unique way of doing it. And what it means now is that we've seen a whole bunch of other fintechs partnering with major banks and creating these new businesses. And there's, you know, there's one that Macquarie recently announced and, um, and there's been a couple with some of the other banks as well. So, so we actually pioneered that sort of business model rather than sort of starting a bank. But for us, it was, you've heard three different ways to start a bank. Like it's not easy, but it's also not impossible. So Simon, what about Frankie Financial, I guess, from a public profile perspective, most people wouldn't have heard who you are. You're not offering services to consumers into the market, but clearly you've found a great niche in the context of neobanking. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, sure. So uh, Frankie, uh, or Frankie Financial is our name. Uh, it doesn't very really sound very much like an enterprise sales company. And that's because we were not intending to be an enterprise sales company. Frankie, we were intending to be a neobank like these guys. That was the grand plan. And then unfortunately, reality hit because it is really tough to build a bank. Now we've spoken a little bit about capital raising, what needs to be required. There's a lot, of, a lot about regulation and then it's actually, you have to build a, a great bank that people need to switch. And so where we got to is we started building the bank. Um, we got the team together, we raised the money, we started building the bank and we actually started at the very, very, very beginning. And that was, how do you onboard uh, the customer um, seamlessly? Um, that's what's called KYC or in Australia, the 100 point check. And what maybe a lot of people aren't aware is that when you pass on your details, there is a number of different things that start happening in the back end and you're connecting to number of different service providers. And so what you need to do is you need to connect all these different providers, all these back end vendors together. And just because you don't build a bank every day, 
there's just actually no service layer. There actually isn't someone that actually helps you to do this. And so we found it super tough and we started building this straight away. And we were, this is about a couple of years ago. And uh, yeah, we started building this and then we knew a number of other NEOs at the same time. And they're saying, hey, if you're gonna build that bit, maybe we could leverage off your technology and you could help us. And then we thought, wow, maybe, uh, maybe this is a business. And so ultimately where we end up getting to is a lot of our customers are actually the neobanks um, and actually now have a, a couple of uh, the bigger, uh, big four customers uh, as our customers as well. So in short, what do we do? We're an aggregator for the compliance and fraud piece of banks and other financial institutions. We've connected to over 100 different vendors and data sources. We bring that together into a single layer or platform, and then you walk into a bank and say, here's a single unified API, and you can select which vendor you'd like to use. So you're a fintech startup actually based in Stone and Chalk, Melbourne. We have other fintechs in the room. And I guess one thing we often hear is about fintechs struggle to engage with banks. And, you know, you've said actually you're working with not just neobanks, but big four as well. So do you have a view in terms of, you know, who's easier to work with because neobanks are new? Is they've got a fresh sheet of paper? It's, it's, is that a faster, better uh, journey to take? Or how do you compare the two sectors? Yeah, as I said, we sort of fell into this, so it yeah. wasn't necessarily sort of strategic. And sometimes you can re-engineer the story, and this is always the plan, and this is where we're going to go to, etc. Um, yeah, so we, we we started solving a problem that we think was really tough, and we experienced that ourselves. Remember, so when I'm speaking to a customer, which was ended up being another neobank, I could speak very eloquently. This is the problem that we're solving, and this is how we can help. We can reduce costs. We can save time. Um, uh, and then I, they can really understand that. So working with the NEOs initially at the start was really quite straightforward. We managed to get a little bit of PR, which then actually ended up being an inbound request from, from other, the big four. Now, obviously there are clients now, so I need to be a little bit careful of and, and what I'm saying, but obviously as you can appreciate when you deal with a larger company, you're definitely uh, going to have more bureaucracy. It's gonna take a huge amount of time. None of this will be a surprise to, to anyone, I'm sure. Um, there's pros and cons, obviously, with some of these bigger players and photos, volumes, etc. Um, but yeah, I, uh, a neo should and will always move faster, just with le less bureaucracy. And what about others on the panel? In as far as well, because you know you're a neo bank, to what degree are you able to or proactively trying to collaborate with other startups? Um, because you know, again. I guess the feedback is incumbents, uh, you know, either don't have an interest or if they do, they can't actually translate that into commercial outcomes. Is this something you're kind of proactively trying to embrace to, to partner with other, you know, organisations, not necessarily just, you know, the big end of town from a tech perspective? Yeah, we, we work with, I think we've over 40 different partnerships that we have in place um, to provide different services. Um, the reality is that we move at an extremely fast pace and we're very, very clear about what we want. Uh, and so we have just naturally partnered with smaller, earlier stage um, companies. Um, we, there's really not a number one vendor that we work with because they're too slow, they're too expensive. Um, so yeah, we naturally just gravitate towards them and uh, you know, absolutely we're happy to, to work with people. And um, you know, there's got, we've got some good examples of that uh, already. Um, our uh, energy switch product, which is just about to launch, which helps people save up to $400 a year on their energy bill, 
no commissions. It's a service that a bank has never offered before. Uh, our partner with that uh, is a, a, a startup as well. Um, they're the, the data source. Uh, we provide the, um, uh, the smarts in our app. It's just an example of where we absolutely can work with um, smaller companies. And to do that with a big company would have taken years instead of months. Mm, interesting. It's sort of the definition of startup, right? So, so Ferocia, some people call Ferocia a startup, but we're 53 people now. When we launched, we were 29. Um, and so our goal was to sort of launch a bank with less than 30 people. Um, and, and so that was, that was ambitious, but, you know, we, we, we just scraped it in. Um, but so some people see us as a startup, but we also partner with other companies and some of them are small, like you say, like it could be, a, a, you know, two people in a, in a team or 20 people or whatever. But we also partner with technology companies that are bigger as well. So, for example, Google or Apple or, um, you know, we, part, we announced some um, partnerships with TransferWise, um, so first bank in Australia to do a partnership with them for foreign exchange, um, and then also Afterpay. And so Afterpay is now a public-listed company. They're worth, I don't know, 11 billion, and they, you know, all, they're all over the world now and everything. But, you know, that partnership when we first started, they didn't have an API. Like we, they set up a new team in San Francisco and we worked together to build that API because they just didn't have it yet. So they've also been growing quickly. So the other thing I'll just add to what Rob said is that when you partner and you partner right, you can actually grow together and scale together. And I think that has been really useful in being able to build a bank rather than just partner with a big bank. Okay, great. So that's, I mean, this is really telling us that a neobank offers the opportunity to Im- rather than it just being a service providing, right, but that it's an actual evolution for both of the parties involved, that that may be part of what's going on here then. Yeah, I mean, we, we um, you know, win all these awards and stuff about the relationship between Bendigo and Ferocia, right, because UP is unique in the market in that sense. And we've had a lot of traction, a lot of success, but a lot of it comes down to trust. So you can't just partner with a bank, like walk in off the street and go, we're going to do this amazing thing. It takes time to develop that trust. We, again, were in a fortunate position that we'd worked with Bendigo and Adelaide Banking Group for five years before we even started. So we kind of had a runway and we had a framework of how we could potentially do it together. But there's also in any partnership, and it's a great, they're a great partner, they're a great bank to work with. The, The reason is you have to align any partnership with your values and your ethics. And so for us, you know, Bendigo is a very community-oriented bank. Um, you know, they, they, they care a lot about people. Um, they care about the environment. You know, all those sort of things that matter, they're things that matter to us. And so I think that the partnership is not about technology or size. It's about finding an alignment with the right type of partner so that you can do it together. So one thing we heard about, and I guess it's very obvious to the market in as far as a consumer neobank, that your front line, your, your customer-facing touchpoint is the app and the digital services you deliver. But, you know, Alex, when we had you on the podcast and we're talking about judo, your message was that your front line are the business bankers and staff you'll put in place and digital is really, you know, more in the background to support them and to make the running of the bank more efficient. So can you give us an example too of, of, you know, where digital plays a role and how that supports your front line? Yeah, great question. Um, so just to sort of explain a little bit what we mean by that, which is we um, looked at the market. We, we were S- so I'll start again. Judo is an SME-focused business bank, okay? So we're not um, a retail bank in so such. We're an SME-focused retail bank. That's what we do, and we lend money to SME businesses. If you listen to what SME customers say, they all say um, 
our banks aren't listening to us, they don't understand us, they haven't got the skills to be able to lend to us anymore, um, I don't have a relationship with my banker, um, all they do is send me to a contact center or, or send me online, all right? They don't understand my business, they can't, and, and it's too hard to do business with them. Um, now, we solve that by putting um, highly qualified, highly experienced, uh, credentialed bankers back in the premises of those customers and actually understanding their business and actually being able to lend to them in a way that we would have lent to them as bankers 15, 20 years ago, rather than just lending against the security that they have in their property. And that's a, a huge missing gap in the market. Um, now, if you start with a blank sheet of paper, which all of us were really lucky to do, um, you can actually think about the technology that you're going to provide. So rather than provide effectively the, the digital technology to the end customer, we try to create a process where um, the, our, our bankers could completely control the experience for the customer and they effectively had all the digital components that they needed to be able to do that. Um, so, from a, an operations perspective, um, you know we have we don't have a centralised uh, you know anything. We don't have a centralised credit team. We don't have a centralised operations team. Um, you know all those things you'd see in a big bank uh, don't exist in anywhere near the scale that you'd expect it to see. Uh, it's all out in the in the front line to support those bankers. Um, you know a, a story I heard when we first started employing people was, you know, as an ANZ banker, um, I've got I'd have to have have to log into or input stuff into about 26 different systems to complete a deal. Um, you know, with a blank sheet of paper, um, you don't have to do that anymore. So in many ways, the digital you have is very is staff-facing. Correct, yes. Because the customer wants to speak to a person. That's what they really value, um, and that's what we try to provide. So Andrew and I joke a lot about my digital wallet on my iPhone because it's got more and more and more and more cards in it, right? The first one was an up, the second one was an 86400 just because that's the order you came out of the market. And then every time Andrew and I would have a meeting, he'd be like, you know, this this new one, I had to immediately sign up for it. I had a meeting with Christina in my first one. She's like, oh, you know, this is new Neobank. And the wallet's getting a little crowded now. Here's the question. From a consumer's perspective, and I think this is also true for a business bank, you're now starting to reach a, a, a state where there's going to be a paradox of choice, where in fact having more solutions in the market actually produces more friction because it's more decision for the customer. How do you get around the fact that the neobanks, although they're easier to start than a big four bank and you still you still have the on-ramp of raising capital, but you're still going to see a lot of these entrants and you're still going to have a lot of consumer confusion, paralysis, indecision as more entrants come onto the market. Yeah, we're seeing that now, but we also have seen it at, at scale in the UK. So I think it's a good indicator of what we can expect. So they're a little bit further down the path, like four years into the journey and three years into the open bank journey, and they have uh, more than 50 new neobanks, right? Um, or new digital banks. So, so from, from an Australian perspective, what we can expect is that we're at this inflection point where we're going to get all these new players, international players, domestic players, neobanks, challenger banks, all this sort of stuff, which does create competition and innovation and consumer choice, but can also create confusion and so on. So I would just answer it in this way, is that what we saw in the UK in the last five years is people going from having one or two bank accounts with different banks to having five different ones 
and now the banks are competing over share of wallet as opposed to being a primary financial institution, right? Same thing's happening here in Australia. We have 55 million bank customers in Australia and we have 18 million adults. That means that everyone in this room, on average, has three bank accounts, typically with two or more banks. So, so that change is in the process of happening and now you might, for example, use up as your spender or your saver. You might use um, ComBank for your mortgage. You might use NAB for your credit card, you know, whatever. That's what we're seeing happening. I think that, um, so I'll let you answer for yourselves, but in 86400's case, it's like how do we help people do that better, right? So uh, this might sound a little bit strange, but Australia actually doesn't need another bank. Like it doesn't need any more banks if the bank is going to be exactly the same as what's currently in the marketplace. And so in terms of new banks, they, they need to offer something genuinely different. So we've worked really hard on all the utility stuff. We've got all the utility stuff that you'd expect, you know, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, Google Pay, Fitbit, Garmin Pay, NPP, OSCO, you know, real-time payments. But it's the wow stuff that the experiences that people haven't seen before that will make the difference. And so it's that balancing, building all the functional stuff with the wow stuff that people just haven't experienced in Australia or anywhere in the world, actually, with some of the features we've delivered. Um, we've also seen the exact same phenomenon that, you know, 50% of Australians have two or more bank accounts with two or more financial institutions. And so one of the things is that, you know, big four banks talk about their main financial um, you know, oh, this is, we're the main financial bank for someone, that term is just going to become ridiculous. In, in, it's already ridiculous. You know, if, if banks think just because a salary goes into an into account, that counts someone as a main bank financial customer, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, the reality is, and we've actually had a cute ad playing that said basically, it's okay to keep seeing other banks. Just try us. And that's what's happening. That's what happens when the market changes. People just try you to start with. And then it's up to us and up to others to demonstrate you can do something really different. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what's happening. So, yeah, sure, you might have four or five cards in your wallet, but you'll probably only end up using one or two. You might use someone for savings. You might use something for travel. You might use something for someone different. And the reality is those who can actually help people do different things will win. Um, and those who think that they're going to own everything, a whole 100% relationship for the customer, that's just not going to be the world All right, going so forward. A Andrew, I think you and I need to start Australia's first meta neobank. <laughs> so that yes. we can manage the fact that everyone's going to be walking around with 10 or 15 That's right. different the, bank the Trivago accounts. Or bank but surely you don't carry them in a wallet still, like as a physical one, Mark? He likes bright coloured things. I do so, like, uh, you know, if you're starting a new <laughs> bank, give me a bright coloured card, it will be in my wallet. Exits. You're all startups. You must have an eye on what your exit is. Although you're all quite different. So do you want to give some reflection on, you know, are you headed to a public offering? Are you, do you think you're headed because... At some point, the big four are going to get nervous enough they're also going to try to buy you, right? Because that's just the deal here. So how do, how do you see that happening as you folks evolve? Because every startup has to have some idea of what an exit is. Uh, again, we're a little bit different. So we've raised no money at all. Um, we uh, are a self-funded organisation. And, uh, and that puts us in a slightly different position that we're not... Uh, having the same sort of consideration. So we, our idea is to build uh, up as a, a, a bank that becomes the number one digital bank for under 35, well, the number one bank for under 35s in Australia. To do that would require us to have 2 million customers because the number one under 35 today is Commonwealth Bank and they have 1.86 million customers under 35. So that's a, a, you know, a lofty goal. If we continue at the current cadency, we've been in market for 15, 16 months, we will be a top 10 Australian bank by the end of this year. So we're growing very fast 
um, fast deposits, fast customer growth, all that sort of stuff. So, so the question for us is not when to exit. The question for us is will we be alive in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? So we're trying to build a bank that is around in perpetuity like the current banks that we see that say we're 150 years old or 200 years old or whatever. So we don't have our eye at the moment, and not saying anything could happen, but we don't have our eye on what's our valuation, what's our enterprise value, what's our exit strategy, are we going to do an IPO? That stuff is interesting and for us. And a question you may not want to answer, do you, are you still connected at the hip to Bendigo and Adelaide, though? Uh, no is the short answer, but it's complicated. And it took us about a year to, to, to work with the regulators to set up up in the first place. And it's taken us about another year to, to go on a journey with the regulators so they understand how we're growing and as we scale. I would say in the next year, it could change again because as we scale... The structures, the legal structures, the technical structures, the business structures, everything needs to change. And probably, for example, we might like to raise capital to fuel the growth. Uh, look, we've, we're entirely focused on uh, how do we provide a better experience, better product? Uh, how do we get great customer satisfaction and, and how do we create advocacy? Uh, and those things will actually drive the success of 86400. In terms of capital events, we're, we're in the middle of a capital raise right now. Uh, in terms of a, uh, you know, a, a public offering, um, it's, it's likely to happen in the sort of two to three year time frame. But for us, the driver of that is really about just accessing the sort of capital you need to grow a mortgage book. Um, what people, a lot of people don't understand is that the capital we require, I mean, we build a bank, an entire bank, end-to-end, everything launched less than $50 million. Um, what we need capital for is to put it set aside for mortgages. And uh, obviously, we're the only one who's actually launched mortgages in the marketplace. And so that's the pathway to profitability. So um, capital events, public markets provide you great access to capital. That's, that's the main reason you think about that. Look, we're a VC-backed company, as you know, in raising money, you need to be having forecasts and expectations, et cetera. These are your investors and they're investing in you because they want to get a good return. Um, where we are today, we actually not necessarily focused really on the exit, it's much more about focusing on the value uh, and uh, we're trying to win the Australian market this year and then it's very much about uh, globalising what we're doing. We think neobanks isn't necessarily just a trend in the UK and Australia. We think globally everybody loves a good customer experience and we think digital is the future. Uh, so we're super focused on uh, yeah, really value and on what we're doing. So let me, let me reframe this though. If we were thinking about people who are or firms that would acquire you, it would be someone like a Swift, right? Like someone who actually needed to offer that service layer that you're getting very good at. Oh, look, that's always potential. Uh, it'd be probably more than likely someone in the financial space. Yeah. Um, we're connecting a number of different pieces together. Um, it could be in the fraud area, it could be in the payments area, it could be a number of, uh, number of different areas. Uh, look, from Judo's perspective, um, you know, when you're raising money, you uh, you go through that VC process. You know, everybody asks, you know, what's the, what's the exit strategy? How's it going to work? You know, the investors want their money back or they want some liquidity at some point. Um, and we always say the same thing, which is um, we're here to build a long, sustainable business. Um, we're here to build Australia's best business bank. Um, that's going to take a few years. Um, exactly what will happen and what the exit strategy looks like um, after that we'll tell when then we'll see what the market says um but you know all options are on the table and um, have got to be considered but it's not something that we're really actively thinking about at the moment at all there's probably a lot of people in the room that have a startup or been involved in a startup or whatever and i think that um to all the points that were made you can get very distracted by 
what's my exit strategy, what's my valuation, you know, all that sort of crap. I, I think focusing on the customer, focusing on the experience and being the best at what you can be, the rest of that stuff is an outcome. Like it really does follow. And so if an opportunity arises, like you said, the door's always open. If an opportunity arises for an acquisition or an investment or a public listing or whatever, and it provides you with access to market, access to money or whatever it might be, or scale, um, then you can consider it at the time. But don't get, my advice would be, don't get caught up on the idea that you need to do all that stuff. That stuff has to happen, sure, but it shouldn't be the focus. Because otherwise, what are you building? You're building a company to raise money and then you're building a company to exit? Like, it's kind of a weird thing. Agreed, it's <laughs> a weird thing. But at the same time, I'm asking it because in Australia, it's also a new thing. We haven't had banks forming and going public for, I don't how long was it? Four to 40 or 50 years when some of the, the big four went public. And so that's also that's why this is an interesting thing because we're seeing a new kind of exit for a new kind of business here. Well, also I heard when everyone was answering that a lot of the capital comes from overseas, right? Like the Australian capital market is also quite small in a, in a global sense. And so to do it properly as a bank, you probably need to access global money, not just Australian money. Um, and that has been changing over the last sort of five years or so. But at the same time that technology has been adopted and that neobanks are launching and that the payment system is updating, also we've seen more capital coming into the market and more access to capital and more venture capital funds and so on and so forth. But you're still talking, I mean, most of the funds are sort of four or five hundred million. You would suck up an entire fund to do an entire funding round for any of your banks. Uh, I've got a question for Alex. Um, just out of interest, you know, we see so many new neobanks coming to market. I think already in Australia there's been more than a dozen announcements, some live, some not yet. But of course, Judo is operating exclusively in the small business sector. And as a challenger, new entrant, you've kind of got that space largely to yourself. And I mean, what's your strategic thinking from a business perspective that, you know, before you know it, there'll be some others entering that space or you've got some clear air for now? Or, and why do you think that's the case? Oh, look, um, we already know there's uh, three or four other ones uh, in, the, in the wings looking to come forward and we encourage it. Um, the more uh, competition that there is in the market will drive more and more switching activity from the big four. Um, you know, if, even if judo was, you know, outrageously uh, successful, we'd probably never take more than three or four percent of the market share. Um, but if we've got ten new entrants in the same space, all uh, all giving great propositions that are better than the uh, the, the incumbents, um, that just encourages people to say, "Oh, there is an alternative, and we can move elsewhere." And so we really, really encourage the the competition into the market. Um, it's great that we 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 managed to get there first. It's great we got a bit of clear air, uh, which is good. Um, but. We, we very much encourage other people to join the party. Alex, and I, I don't mean to, to short circuit you, but do you see a time in the future when there's going to be a neobank that deals specifically with, say, small retailers, and then another one that deals with small manufacturers? I mean, are we going to start to get that specific around understanding and meeting a customer's needs? Uh, quite possibly. Um, I think the, the, the key, and, and I say this to everybody, is really understand who your customer is, what proposition you're trying to, uh, to give them, and focus 110% on that. It's so easy uh, for as bankers, I mean, I'm a 100-year banker, whatever it is, you know, we've, had, you know, we've gone from wealth to insurance to this, to that, to the other, we've, you know, um, but the art is making sure that you really understand what your customers want and you give them the proposition that they want. And if you can do that, you'll be fine. 
Um, I mean, I the challenge I always set, uh, set to everybody that talks to me about this is um, really retail banking and, to, and as you go up the curve, um, it's really rather simple, right? It's not overly complex for most of us, right? Um, it's not a... Um, so, but banks make it really complicated. <laughs> Right? So really, there's a, there's a, there's a, the niche in the market is, is as all these guys are doing is basically try and make uh, it invisible, right? Try and make it so simple that you don't have to do it anymore. Um, and you know, if you can actually start to do that for retail customers and for, for all customers, in fact, that's where you get some real magic. That's a great note to end on. That's a big thanks, Dominic Pym, Rob Bell, Simon Costello, Alex Twig. Didn't they do a great job, folks? So, Andrew, now that we're back in studio and we've had sort of three weeks to reflect on all of this, I'm thinking that one of the things that really came across in this panel is that in the age of neobanking, there's kind of no one right way to do this. You know, you take a look at each of the three banks that were on the panel. Each of them have found a path into becoming a neobank. And Simon's business, he wanted to become a neobank and then realized there was better business in actually servicing all of these neobanks, which even though they're all quite different, all share common needs. So actually, the playbook of old has really been ripped up and thrown out. And that's largely due to, A, the regulators being more flexible around how you can bring a bank to market and the capital requirements. B, of course, you know, the world is full of these fantastic entrepreneurs who want to disrupt, uh, you know, traditional models and change the future for the better. C, you've got a lot of capital flowing in to support these new ideas. And D, of course, the average consumer, you, me, and people listening to this are very willing and able to uh, download and deploy and make use of these new services. So there's so much going on now. And it's not, therefore, uh, unexpected to see all these different banks and services coming to market, but taking different pathways to do that. And it's interesting. So Zynga, which is another one of the bigger neobanks, sort of almost in that first crop with 86400 and UpBank, made an announcement at sort of the third week of March that they'd taken on board what, around $400 million in investment. And they managed to do that again in the middle of the crisis caused by the pandemic, which was also amazing. And it does show you that, in fact, there are going to be these moments where there, there by startup terms, huge amounts of money being raised to fund banks. Does that look like it's the barrier now? Because Up didn't have that barrier. Up partnered with Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. How do we see neobanks negotiating that capital barrier? Or is that the table stakes for a neobank? So I think each of them would have a different view on the role of capital. Clearly, Up is come to market in a much more lean fashion, riding off the back of their uh, relationship they have with Adelaide and Bendigo Bank, which is the licensed uh, entity and I guess the wholesale provider of a lot of the services. Um, whereas clearly, if we look at Zinja and even Judo, you know, saying that they're also going to raise another, I think, $400 million, um, they're, you know, of course, 
see capital playing a very real role at fast-tracking their um, proposition coming to market and being very aggressive in getting market share and building brand awareness. So I think, you know, each of them, uh, I suggest, would realise that capital plays a different role and allows them to do different things in different ways. And I think it's good to see all of these different models and, you know, in time to come, people will be doing, you know, PhDs on comparing what was, you know, was one neobank more successful over another based on their journey to market. And then we have Simon, who, again, started a neobank, but then realized that there was a better business in building the services that all neobanks need. If we have the neobank sort of focusing on this customer relationship, and everyone on that panel was very clear that the customer relationship is the center of what they do then they don't want to really have to worry about all the services underneath, such as the KYC service or the you know, transfer service or the thing that maybe plugs into PayID or whatever. Are we going to see a whole bunch of new businesses form that will do all of this wiring under the map for the neobanks? Yes, I think we definitely will. And, you know, Simon and the guys at Frankie Financial, I think are really smart and ahead of the curve in bringing to market their proposition. I mean, even with up, you know, many ways, they're also really relying on their licensed partner to provide a lot of that back office and compliance and regulatory obligations. So, um, you know, the neobanks, as we heard on the panel, are all focused on the customer. They're all focused about the customer experience and the value they're bringing to their customer, whether it's a consumer or a small business. So, in many ways, they really don't want to get bogged down in terms of uh, priorities and resource allocations and budgets and all the um, potential implications down the track at trying to build, you know, these complex back office systems and processes. Um, because also, as we've seen, a lot of these neobanks are being formed by people who don't necessarily come out of the world of banking. You know, the, the, these are great guys who understand, you know, how to design an app and, and you know, thinking um, human-centered design and CX and this and that, um, but they don't necessarily appreciate, okay, what are the real nitty-gritty aspects of does it mean to run a bank and where could I get tripped up if things go wrong? And on that note... I want to thank you because I have to say it was a real pleasure to host this panel with you. Let's make sure that we do that again. Yes, Mark, it's been a fantastic journey and I really enjoyed the the panel that we've done for this episode. All right. If you want to learn more about the incredible developments at UpBanking or JudoBank or 86400 or just learn about Frankie Financial, drop by our website at betabank.show. You'll find everything there to go deeper, as deep as you need to learn as much as you want. That's betabank.show. Now, to listen to any of my other podcasts, Cryptonomics, The Next Billion Cars, The Next Billion Seconds, 1968, When the World Began, just open your favorite podcasting app and search for Mark Pesci. That's P-E-S-C-E, Pesci. Big thanks to Christina Singh, Sarah, and the whole Stone & Shaw crew for helping us put our event together. Beta Bank was written and presented by Mark Pesci and Andrew Davis. Created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell and sound production by Matt Nikolich. Theme music by Matt Dwyer. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.